0: Welcome back to the Product Stories Podcast hosted by Victor Peralnik. This podcast helps founders like yourself to find leaner ways to build successful SaaS products. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Alistair Isim, founder of Process Bliss. Despite being a non technical founder, he's a SaaS veteran. He's launched his first SaaS uh, way back in 2003 and sold it to a competitor a few years ago. Right now, He's building his next thing. Listen to his story, how he, uh, how the SaaS industry changed over almost 20 years, and let's take a quick look on Alistair's approach to manage people with process. Alistair, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Vic. Nice to, nice to be here. Appreciate
0: the chance. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, how did you end up uh, founding a SaaS company in
1: 2003 before it was cool? Well, I think my father used to rent out buildings. Well, he was a farmer, and farming went bad in the UK farming anyway at a certain point in time. Um, so he sold up the farm and started to turn all his buildings into, into kind of offices and load storage and all sorts of things. And I thought that was um, a much better. I never went into farming. I thought it was a mugs game. And I thought renting all this, um, these, these offices out was, was like he made more money and he didn't have anything like the risk he had with farming and none of the stress and hard work. And I just thought, well, that's really cool. So when, when sort of tech became a thing that you could do, I just thought, well, I saw this this opportunity to rent out software, except the difference was he's got a limited number of software of, of, of farm buildings, whereas I could keep replicating my software and rent it out again and again. So this was kind of, this was kind of software as a, saf- 2003 software as a service was, wasn't even a word. Um, so for me, it was just like, let's, let's rent some software. It sounds a really, really good idea. So that's kind of how I got into it.
0: Uh, that's amazing. So uh, you, you essentially thought that you could solve the scalability problem that your dad had. With software, you understood the unit economics of software and you wanted to go for it. And how, how did you decide on, on what to build? Uh, what, what did you build in the
1: end? So at the time, I'd um, I obviously turned my back on farming, which my father was a bit upset about. And I'd gone and set up a, um, or, or joined a, a consultancy. And we were, well, I was an actuary and I was consulting with pension funds about how they should be funded and, and things like that. And these pension funds back then, they acted just like, just like clubs, like the trustees of the pension fund that, that might be managing billions of pounds of assets would turn up the night before a meeting, have a meeting every quarter. They turn up the night before, get drunk, have a lovely meal. The next day would be basically them sat there doing nothing, snoozing, snoozing their hangovers off. Um, they'd have a nice lunch and another glass, two glasses of wine, and then, and then they'd all clear off home. And I thought, well, how? These pension funds are worth billions. I'm running them. And um, I thought, this can't be right. Anyway, it, all, it wasn't right because it all went wrong. And about 2000 and kind of year 2000, somewhere around there, all of a sudden, these pension funds, that was always, always had loads of money in them. Investment returns didn't, didn't perform. And they all of a sudden were struggling for money. And some of them were going, going bust. And, and they, all of a sudden, people weren't getting their pensions. It was pretty awful. And no one had thought this would ever happen. So I kind of saw the writing on the wall. A new regulator came out. And said you know we need to do a better job it was under the tony blair government and he wanted these pension funds to to run better and to work better and i just thought well technology plays a part in that and so that was the opportunity really to say let's kind of set something up that that helps these pension funds run better turns out what these guys did was have meetings and read board papers so what our software which became board packs was about was about delivering their board packs electronically and um yeah, we grew that to be the largest kind of UK provider of that technology by the end before we, we sold out to, to an, our American competitor. So yeah. Exciting.
0: Uh, so you essentially took advantage of a change in regulation that big companies had to adapt to. And obviously, so that that created the demand. How did you sell be, being a,
1: a small, small provider? I think rather we took advantage of a situation, Just, to, I, th- I think what actually happened was we saw a we saw a problem that I mean, regardless of the regulator, these funds needed to run better and 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 things. And they, um, you know, they they were running poorly. So our mission was to just make them work better. And I think it's I think it's an important point to your audience because I think you need to make clear you need to have a problem to solve in the world with a SaaS product. It's not just enough to react and build something because as a someone says, it's necessary. You've really got to have a kind of mission that your employees and everybody can get behind. But but coming on to the the sale. It's an interesting one to sell because, as a founder CEO, it's a really difficult thing to get your head around. You build this business for your certain motivations, and everybody's motivations are different. Um, mine was kind of to build something I was proud of, and, and you know, to to escape. I suppose it was to escape employment as well, you know, and to to become my own person and to gain autonomy. But your your business becomes your identity, and so I, I mean, I sold the business four times really before I eventually sold it. So the first time was to one of the big four accounting firms. They agreed to buy it. And I was just like, then they said I needed to become a partner of the accounting firm. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. So forget it. So I walked away. And what was, I mean, useful tip for anyone selling a business there is that it doesn't hurt to try and sell it and then pull out because I got my biggest client there from them because I said went back to them later and said, why did you want it? And I said, well, we can help you anyway, because we, you can just become a client and buy the software and and do that so so that was the first time second time was was to my the people who eventually bought it, and I, I that was really embarrassing i mean i i got to I got to about um well through the due diligence we'd agreed to sell it. They'd shipped over twenty people from New York to a hotel for two days, and my team came up to meet them with five or six people. All the advisors were there, so there' were like thirty people more in this room, and we sit for two days going through all the due diligence and grilling all the product manager and grilling the IT guys and grilling the HR and the marketing. And, you know, they're really trying to understand your business. And after the first day, we all go for dinner for that evening. And I, I said to my wife, well, I, I sit, you sat in the room and you realize when you're selling a business that you're kind of the only one in the room not gaining anything, which sounds strange to say, and no one really gets it. But in that room, you've got the advisors who are all getting seven figure, yeah, they're getting seven figure payouts on both sides. You've got, the, you've got all the people that are buying it. They're all getting big bonuses as a result of this. You've got your own team that are going to get a payout. But ultimately, yes, you're going to get some money, but it's only what your business is worth anyway. So you've got a business, whether you sell it or not. And so you, you're not really gaining anything. You're just changing your lifestyle. And what you're losing, you're, getting, you're gaining your freedom, but you're losing your identity. And it's a really weird thing to go through. And I, I said to my wife the night in between these two days, Uh, we went out for dinner and I said to her I'm not comfortable with this and she just said well you don't have to do it I said well these guys have spent quarter of a million pound now doing their due diligence I can't just pull out um so I had a week of um I had a week of kind of pain and sleepless nights figuring it out and then I decided to pull out so yeah we we went through all that I I had another approach to VCs but eventually we, we sold it to them about um six months later so um so, but it, it, I think it's interesting the whole identity thing with the business when you set it up. So, yeah.
0: Oh, it's true. It's a very valid point, especially if you run it for, for many years. There's a lot of people who say, don't let your business become your baby, quote unquote, what some people call it. But, but then again, ultimately, how, how can you not, right? In, in, in some way, this is, it's this thing you're, you're proud of and, and, and you're seeing grow, right? If I were to make a parallel.
1: Yeah, it is, and I think I think, and I do miss it. Um, even though I've got my new business, I do miss the, the uh, that business was larger when I sold it than this one is, and I, I miss that kind of that kind of buzz of having a big organization that operates around you. And I do remember thinking at the time, maybe that's unhealthy. Maybe you shouldn't need this in life to be to be happy. Because so I, it as almost forced a life change on myself, thinking, you know, it's an unhealthy thing to have attached your identity to a business but it doesn't make it any easier <laughs> to, you know, you, you, it's still, it's still an unpleasant experience. There's still an unpleasant aspect to it um, that, um, that's very uncomfortable.
0: That's true. Well, getting back how, how big was your team back at the company when you sold
1: it? Uh, my development team was about 30. My overall business was about 75, 80 people. So yeah.
0: That's very decent size for SaaS. Yeah. Um, did you bootstrap that one or was it funded?
1: I bootstrapped it. Yeah, I think things were different back then. I think that would be a really tough thing to do today. I don't know anyone who's really trying to bootstrap. Well, maybe a few people, but trying to bootstrap SaaS is hard because people expect more of the software. So I I kind of bootstrapped it. I think we probably would have been more... Well, we would undoubtedly have been more successful if we'd taken investment, but it just wasn't a world I knew at the time.
0: Yeah, today, of course, the, the, the the landscape is a bit different uh vcs are well known everywhere they're kind of uh, a new social class so to speak so are SaaS entrepreneurs right today that's a thing you can you can tell someone at a dinner party and they wouldn't know what you're doing uh as opposed to 20 years ago i would i i guess but speaking of which i think this is interesting what you're saying about uh, bootstrapping today i know a lot of people who are bootstrapping SaaS, and some of them are also very successful but i guess the 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 general idea uh of uh SaaS becoming easier because some people say it's easier to build a SaaS now right because you have better frameworks uh better technology a lot of components you can reuse third-party pro- services whatnot but ultimately because it's becoming easier is it not becoming harder it's what you're saying because now there's more SaaS. it's becoming easier to build per se so um The expectations uh, have gone up. There's more competition. So is it not becoming maybe harder? Is that what you're saying?
1: I I think what's happening, yeah, I think it's becoming easier and harder. And in essence, it's much easier to build a decent SaaS product using all the tools. I mean, if you go to um, SaaS stock or somewhere like that, it's like there's so many SaaS companies selling to SaaS companies. There's so much software out there, SaaS software, for SaaS software companies. It's almost like, is anybody who's making the money around here because we're all selling to each other? And it is a, it, is a, it has, it is becoming almost self-perpetuating because there's so much SaaS for SaaS. So, um, so that's great, but that also means there's so much competition. It's like anything. That just means loads of people can come in. So, you know, whereas, whereas when I started, we, we started and we were doing this board paper solution. We did it for pension funds because that was my background. Then we went, did it for universities. Then we went, did it for, um, corporates. We did it for, Uh, hospitals we did it for schools we did it for all sorts of people and we went from sector to sector whereas now and we, we didn't really find anybody to compete with until quite far on whereas now i think you know you you very very quickly you need to find your niche and then you very quickly move on to you very quickly move on to another niche but it's already covered because someone else is hitting that because there's so much more of it around so what I do think it's doing though, is it, I mean, it's massively improved the quality of SAS, the knowledge we have, the data we have, the tools we have, you know, intercom and things like that from the ability to, yeah, that, that was just a dream. That would have just been a dream come true in the day to have all the kind of functionality of the live chat and the, the, the tool tips all built in and, and easy to use and automated, as well as the data you collect through the software. It's, it's, um, absolutely fascinating how the industry has evolved to, which has really just improved the, the quality and the the volume of these products that can be be made to serve different purposes. Take DocuSign for an example. I find DocuSign interesting because I remember thinking when DocuSign came out and they were successful, I thought that's all signings sewn up. But then all of a sudden, I mean, how how many signing products have since come out, carving out their niches like PandaDoc and HelloSign and all these others? They're also massively successful, just chipping away at different kind of more specialist areas and, and making really great advancements in the area of something as simple as signing documents
0: true and uh, to this point right of uh, how easy or easier it perhaps is to build software today because you can essentially wire together you know a few tools and you have a fairly sophisticated thing how did you build your MVP back in the days what was your sort of scrappy first thing you built
1: so I so I' am bootstrapping it so I haven't I haven't I said, "Beat Strapper." I did actually approach an IT firm who agreed to take an equity stake for helping to develop it. Um, they unfortunately, or fortunately for me, went bust, which meant I was free to carry on on my own. After when we had, we had two clients, and they, I said, "Well, you know, you, you either you either go with it or you don't." But we're not making any money, and they sort of said, "No, you, you're on your own." But they they gave me the first, um, the, yeah, the prototype. But building it with no no very little budget, we were fortunate enough to be able to. Uh, hang on to SharePoint, which i I kind of grown to hate as a tool. It's a very clunky microsoft piece of software. But what we were able to do was probably do what you can do now, but in a lot more sophisticated way. We were able to get a product to market. Essentially, it wasn't a lot more than SharePoint to start with, with a few little tweaks. And people, no one knew what SharePoint was. No one had discovered it. So we could we could take what was an already developed platform, modify it a little bit, and push it out. And we grew from there. And what was interesting was I I kind of like... It took me all the way through to 2018 when I sold it. To, to we were just building the the next version of the software, which would have got rid of SharePoint completely. Up until then, we had to do so much work to work around SharePoint because SharePoint became our database. You can imagine, you know, you just you just want to implement something like user management, but you have to implement user management in the SharePoint way using Microsoft Windows. But you don't want to have to you don't want to have to have organisational units in Microsoft and all that kind of detailed stuff Microsoft desktop users have. So we had to write stuff to kind of write stuff to their software to make it do what we wanted, and it absolutely it was so complicated. It became a bit of a a rod for our back in the end, but um, but but it helped us get it off the ground really efficiently. That's super
0: interesting. You're you're mentioning it because there's a parallel to very up to date approach and how to well, bootstrap your SaaS or, or build your initial version, Validate, which is uh, one of the many low-code, no-code tools out there, right? It's it's exactly the same thing. You can get something out there very quickly, but once you scale, you either have to rewrite everything or you start writing around it, at least initially, and then you really need to make it work all together. So it's super interesting to see that this has literally survived up until... <laughs> recently um, yeah. well SharePoint whatever works been, right
1: yeah sharepoint must have been one of the first low yeah low-code no-code products because that's what it was you know it was it was them saying you, anybody can build a portal but you're right at the end what we had was sharepoint in the background we'd written a whole ui over the top of it you never saw sharepoint anymore but we were having to write to the sharepoint awesome. ui so um so yeah it was um it, it's kind of it's, it's interesting how that's evolved all, it all stayed the same
0: What else do you think has changed since the early
1: 2000s in terms of SaaS? I guess uh, what what I've already mentioned about the whole, I mean, so much has changed. I mean, it didn't exist back then. So it's become its own ecosystem, hasn't it? It's become its own thing. I mean, I can remember in, what would it be, probably 2006, maybe something like that. I can remember hearing the word software as a service for the first time and thinking, hey, that's what we do. And sort of not really, we didn't really caught on to it at the time, but it's um yeah so much has changed because it's it's sort of like a thing people understand then we had to explain it to people back then I think one other thing that's changed is the mentality of people with regards to the finances because if you've got a SaaS business you know that if you get you know a million dollars of revenue that's worth five million pounds say you know or five million dollars say so you can kind of get investment and, and you can kind of commit things but back then People thought I was absolutely nuts. They thought, you know, you're pouring money into this thing. You're spending more on clients than it's costing to, than they, they're paying you in a year. And I was going, yeah, but they're going to stay forever. So it's, it's fine. And that whole kind of mentality didn't exist. And so you were, you were nuts for thinking that. Whereas now it's just a, it's just an accepted thing. So the whole financing thing has, has become different. I mean, you, the idea of pricing a business on multiple of revenue, I mean, to many people, that's still quite surprising as opposed to multiple of profit. Um, it's sort of like, it's almost like the expense element is irrelevant because it's SaaS, because it will just carry on doing what it does forever. So, you know, I think that's, I think that's kind of changed considerably. Mm, That's a very, very fair point. Uh, Thank you so much for, sorry. Sorry, the other thing to cut in, I think is the client perception that's quite interesting. So one of the things we faced in that, that period back then was we've already got a system to do this and we've already, you know, people, people wanted to minimize the number of systems they had. They go. We've already got. We've already got Microsoft for email, Word, and Docker. And we've already got this system over here for managing our operations. And you know, we don't. We really don't need another system. You think? Well, these these those systems don't solve the problem we're solving. But it was a struggle. Whereas now, you know, we're a startup. We've got way, way, way more systems and pieces of software than employees. You know, and we don't worry about it. And it's all single sign-on, and it's brilliant. It's not a hassle. Back then, that was a hassle to people. That's
0: true, but you also see today, I think, how the market is less and less fragmented in 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 very popular areas. There's the hub spots that that really take up big big chunks of of people's uh, previously distributed SaaS tools of like uh, even integrating a CRM now, right? So I think that's that's really happening. It's going to be a big trend to again consolidate a lot of things.
1: That's quite interesting from my experience because. I think that a lot of that is finance driven in that I mean if you pick on our example, the US competitor that, that bought us was a VC backed or private well, private equity VC backed kind of they were they were bought by private equity and that their their job what private equity did was a mop up of all the all the little solutions out there. So we were mocked up, a lot of our competitors were mocked up and they were just they just went out and bought everything they could buy in the marketplace. With the intention, I assume, of kind of floating and um, you know, a much a much bigger organization. So there is a consolidation angle that we were involved in back then. And so, yeah, I think that that definitely, I think, yeah, that's that's the way those things will work.
0: Which might make it again harder for someone to bootstrap a small tool because it might even be better than what others are using. But if you're not within that ecosystem, it really the switching cost is it just could be way too
1: big. Yeah but i still see i mean i'm an investor as well and i've got about 15 companies i'm 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 invested in uh, typically saas companies not all but most and i think there's just so much stuff out there you, you, these companies come along and you you're constantly looking at them and thinking wow you know like no one's ever done that before and that's really cool and yeah why has no one ever thought of that and then you've got things like open banking which open banking in the in the uk which i think is coming to the us as well where you know people's bank accounts are becoming kind of much more open to, to software being able to interact with them, that's just created a whole new field of of, of tech of SaaS products that, that that they're all brilliant and just kind of doing doing amazing things. So I think I think there's just it's I think it is I think there's plenty of opportunity out there if you can just find your find your thing.
0: Yeah, totally. No, you're you're right about that. Uh, whenever you think everything's been done before you find someone who does something new very brilliantly yeah but thank you so much for for uh walking us through 20 years of SAS, but now we we want to turn to a topic that you know very well uh too which is uh people management you've you've had 70 people under you uh within the last company and uh, your new SAS essentially is about process management and um Probably there's a lot of misconceptions about people management and process. Uh, there's a lot of especially beginning founders who say, oh, process is is, uh, is not good for creativity. How do you react to that? Because uh, maybe they just understand process wrong?
1: I think process, I've actually written a book called The Dirty Word, which you can get on Amazon. But if you look it up, you'll need to check the author because there's a there's some other more suspect dirty words on Amazon. But the yeah, and it's about that very it's about that very topic. The fact that pro- people get process wrong as soon as you introduce the word process, people assume it's going to be controlling, kills creativity and all those things. And what I found, I went on a little journey with uh, the, the board packs business um, to to kind of go through this. And so you, you, I got to a point where there were, there were about ten people in the business, and I was working really really long hours basically policing quality because I wanted this business to be perfect so I'm there kind of going around on top of everything meddling in everything um, I think I'm the only one that can ever get anything right you know and, and I'm the only one with a good idea and and, and I my team hated it because they were I was I was killing their motivation because they wanted autonomy to to do wonderful things and I was I was making that almost impossible by my constant um, micromanaging so I thought I had to change and I was working long hours so this wasn't happy for me And I thought, you know, there's no way I can double the size of this business doing this because I'm just going to have to keep working longer and longer hours to keep on top of it all. So I kind of looked at process as a initially as a way to control the business. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. That just uh, continues this drudgery of killing creativity. So I went on a bit of a journey um, whereby and that's where the process software came in, where we we wrote this software and then we we instead of using it to control people, we put people before process so we may we one of the things we always say is people are smarter than process so when you've got someone who's not following a process if you if you've got a process and people don't follow it it's probably because the process is 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 wrong not because the people are wrong and you know what's important to know is where they're not following it and to encourage them to report back and say hey we're not going to follow this process for this reason rather than to make them follow something which simply doesn't work and makes them miserable and frustrated that they can't do a good job because the process is in the way so that was the background to process Biz. And so we developed this SaaS software product, which was really more like process guidance. It's a checklist kind of piece of software that allows you to capture all your processes for people to follow them. It also manages everybody's tasks in the business, but like a project management, task management tool across the business. But people kind of manage all their tasks and their processes through it. But they, if they see something that's wrong, they have the opportunity to say, hey, I'm not going to do that. And this is why. And from that, you get loads of information about how you can improve your business. You learn something. So, you know, for example, if if people aren't recording, aren't recording, you know, putting the new job advert on the on the website, it's probably because that's either not a sensible thing to do or it's too difficult. So let's have a look at why they're not doing it, and maybe we should scrap that step, or maybe we should kind of change it or improve it or make the website better. So all of that is about harnessing your all the people in your business to to make your business run better and. And for me, it took me from, you know, the 10 people working 80 hours a week to really when we had 75, 80 people, I was doing no ongoing work at all. They, the, the team, and it was the same team that kept with me all the way, pretty much the same team were were running the business for me. So, yeah, it's, it's that kind of. And, and so people really do misunderstand process. And I think you've got to rethink it as an empowering tool to, that should encourage creativity, not kill it.
0: So if I understand that correctly, uh, your tool, essentially, um, if if I look at it, if I look at kicking off a standard process, if I imagine some of the tools that will populate a list of tasks or guide me through a few steps, if I'm an employee and I'm, I'm kicking off a process, but now instead of having to actually check off every single step, there's no other option like check this off, you can get to the next one there's an option which says, I'm not doing this, here's why, and I'll just put in, hey, I'm not doing this because it's not necessary for this client. And then me as the business owner, I'm looking at all of this feedback, and I'm like, if 80% of the time this step is not followed because it makes no sense, why are we doing this versus not having this feedback at all and looking at a fully checked list even though people haven't done things uh, or have done them even though they make no sense?
1: Yeah, and the trouble is that if you don't have process... That happens anyway, but you just don't know why and and it may be that you should be doing something else instead, or it may be that you know there's there's a really much better way of handling this, but you don't get the information on on why so what happens in business is people ask for things to be done, and they start to happen I call it process deterioration you you know things will be that you agree something at a meeting we're going to do this every time a client comes on board, and then you find out six months later that it's not happening, and you're like, why is that not happening? We agreed it and and it's because pe- people didn't want to do it. But maybe there's a little things like, for example, we used to give people a gift when they came on board. A client gets a gift. All of a sudden, one day, people aren't getting the gift anymore. Well, it would have been nice if we could have agreed, well, we think this gift is a waste of time. Let's do something else instead, you know. But instead, you just see these processes gradually deteriorating. And it's because there's no, there's no sense that there is a process. It's because people just are busy and they think that they, you know, they don't see the point in certain things. And that... The biggest area that breaks down is often in communication, you know, and in, in how departments communicate with each other. So I used to, in our, in our product release process where we, you know, the developers would develop something and then they would say to, to marketing, right, we're ready to release it. And marketing would say, I need two months to do that. You know, I, I've got a brief client on it's coming. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to tell them about the new feature, get them, kind of get them excited about it. But you're just going to release it, and that's going to have the opposite effect. Everyone's just going to say, "Why have you done this to me? Why have you released this new feature? I was happy with how it was before. So you know, and this, similarly, the support guys wouldn't find out until that point in time as well because no one had told them. So what a process did is it made sure that the correct bits of all the departments were were kind of started work at the right time to work towards a really great outcome. So, um, so yeah, but it, but and it, and this is just and the other the other mistake people make is they they think st- processes should be locked down and kept the same. And they'll often say to me, we're not going to load our processes on yet because we're still refining them. And I'm thinking, you're re- you should be refining that process forever. You should never stop refining that process because the world keeps changing. There are always better ways to do things. So, you know, the idea that you're going to lock it down is just nonsense. You just get it on there, start using it, and then use process Plus as the tool to to make it better over time.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes sense. And um, I have another question on this, which is... Uh- how what what mistakes people uh, make when they write SOPs, especially when it comes to the granularity of tasks, which kind of leads right into what you're saying, uh, liberating people and not locking them down. What's the what's the right level of granularity here?
1: Okay, big big a bit flippant. I think SOPs are. I I, I when we set up process books, I, I thought SOPs were a total waste of time. It's probably a little unfair. Um, they probably do serve a purpose in certain circumstances, but. What happens is, I'd seen this done, you know, when, 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 I, when we were that we 10 employees and I needed to do something, what I'd seen in previous businesses was people drafting SOPs, putting them on a file in a shelf or on a file share, no one ever looks at them, but now, once a year, they're out of date, so we need to go and update the SOP. So someone's got the job of updating the SOP to match, they're not thinking about it, they're not trying to improve things, they're just gonna match what's actually happening in practice because if somebody might get run over by a bus, you know? And, um, and and it, I found that ludicrous. Really, I thought this is just a job that adds no value, and it's just going to cost me money. So I thought we're not doing that. So I think SOPs can serve a purpose in terms of when someone comes on board. Let's this is how you do it, but it's probably out of date anyway. So you need to talk to the person doing the job or who's done the job. But so I, I'm a, I'm not a big fan of that. And, and what I realised when we when we I needed to solve this problem was that for the key processes. The ones that I really, you know, that were really going to make our business dynamic, I needed them embedded in the business. I needed something that the process wasn't something that was separate, like a file on a shelf. The process, the person doing the job, saw the process, ticked it off, or crossed it, or had input into the process as they were going. Because the best people to change the process are the people doing the work. That's when you learn something. The idea that you conduct independent process reviews is is, is nonsense to me. What you should be doing is improving your processes. As you're doing the job, because that's when you know what works and what doesn't work. So yeah, I'm not a not a fan of SOPs per se, but I can see how for some things people do want to document them, and that makes them feel comfortable.
0: That's super interesting. That makes a lot of sense actually, and that's why you built Process Bliss to support that sort of framework
1: and, and mindset. Yeah, and I built it for me. I built it for my business, not for everybody else. And when it was only really when I had the opportunity to sell my old business, I thought actually here's an opportunity to do what this has done for me for loads and loads of other small businesses and uh, around there. So I, um, that's when I really thought we ought to do something commercial around this. Awesome.
0: Where can people learn more about uh process bliss per se and, and
1: how it works and maybe if they want to use it, try it out. So process bliss, um, go to processbliss.com, and and uh, they can kind of get in touch with us there. The other thing I think people can do, one of the things I've written, I've written a, a book and, I've got my own website, alistereesom.com, where we, we have loads of content and useful stuff. And, and I guess one of the things I'm really interested in is people who enjoy this topic, uh, just to have a debate with them. So one of the things we've done there is we've put on there my personal mobile, um, which is, um, I'll give you it now, it's 4-4 for the UK. Get your phones out and go into messaging now if, you, if, you're, if you're listening live. 4-4 for the UK, or even if you're listening not live, 4-4 for the UK, 7418 three seven one eight six six send me a message about process and, and I I promise I promise I'll get back to you so um so yeah I think um yeah if you want to do that test me out on that and we'll uh, we'll have a chat and uh, go from there that's that that's kind of how, how how I like to do it
0: amazing next time I'll fly out to some exotic time zone uh, on the other side of the world i'll'll I'll try it out and text you uh,
1: it's, text, uh, it's actually a text message only number so you can't call me in the middle of the night i <laughs> I, I, I reserve the right to reply within 24 hours <laughs> <laughs> i
0: I see you, you you know what you're doing with that by now very good thank you so much Alistair. uh this has been really insightful thanks for taking us through this uh it's been great to have you in the show
1: it's a pleasure but
0: really enjoyed it This show is brought to you by Trustshoring, your friendly concierge to find reliable and tested software developers from Eastern Europe. We recruit full-time developers, match you to an experienced software house that's ideal for your requirements, or recommend a reliable freelancer for smaller projects. But most importantly, you benefit from our experience of developing software remotely for almost 10 years. We give you one-on-one guidance all the way so you're never lost. Stop the tedious hiring or vetting process and get matched to reliable talent. Sign up for a free consulting call with one of our experts today. Go to TrustShoring.com.